When it comes down to the interest rate, when it comes down to opportunity, all of that is on the front side of an acquisition equation. If that interest rate goes up, then all I have to do is adjust my buying criteria. It does affect the equity positions, but the higher the interest rate, the more equity we are grabbing in these properties. Welcome to Truly Passive Income. I'm Neil Henderson. And I'm Clint Harris. Our guest today is Brett Riggins from Physician Wealth Systems. Brett, welcome to Truly Passive Income. Hey, appreciate it, man. Thank you for your time, Neil. Nice to be on the show. Pleasure to meet you today. Yeah, absolutely. So give us the quick 5,000 foot view of how you got into real estate and got to where you are today, Brett. I all started with construction. My passion is construction, design, engineering, figuring out how to make things work, how to make things work better. My parents built a house when I was younger, ended up going through a process of the never-ending completed house. And unfortunately, my parents lost that house. So kind of built this foundation of the struggles going through that. But my passion continued on in construction and design and led me to seek that in college as well, too, for architectural engineering, construction management. And through that journey, for the listeners can't see the picture, but I've played music through that time, too. I've got a guitar hanging on my wall back here. That led me through to the whole world of flipping houses. And my wife and I started doing that together. At one point, we were doing six houses at a time and turning and burning and rocking and rolling. And there was just a lot of stress. But it all came back down to the world of renovation, construction, design. That's just where our passion lies. What time frame are we talking here, Brett? Early 2000s? Flipping. So I bought my first house in 07. I learned so much of what not to do in that process in 07, because then in 08, things, the world shifted, shook and uh, twisted upside down. But through that journey, it was just going to be a quick flip, a quick turn on a repossessed house, a foreclosed house. And it just didn't work out that way. Ended up holding, fighting for it for two years, doing all the wrong things as a young landlord. That was the first kind of actual hands-on in the real estate world. My wife and I started our investment company in, I believe it was 2016 or 2017. That's when the real systems took place. We invested in ourselves. We surrounded ourselves with people who are doing this and doing it well and creating these systems and leveraging resources. So it was about seven, eight years ago when the real turn into real estate investment happened. We talk about a lot of times that especially investing in real estate, especially value add real estate is typically very labor intensive. And one of the reasons that I was excited to talk to you today is that this podcast is called Truly Passive Income. And we're focusing on investment strategies. And more often than not, we're talking about what is not a passive strategy. And flipping houses and heavy value adding construction and architectural design certainly is not. But I think what this is, is an opportunity to talk about how you've taken that and put it in a playbook, basically, where you take all the systems and the construction and your experience, and you put it into a package where somebody else has access to that system. And for them, it can become a passive investment strategy. And anytime anybody's looking to get into real estate, especially flipping, I've done it before. And my first property, I was supposed to make 35 grand, and I think we made six. And then the next one, we were supposed to make 50. And I think we made 18 or something like that. And eventually caught our stride. But along the way, we also figured out it's not for us. I don't have the attention to detail that it takes to have high levels of success there. But anybody that's going to try to get into that is going to have some missteps along the way. 
and just like you did, right? And the lessons that you learned there is something you carry with you for the rest of your career. So it's an example of the opportunity for people to use your mistakes and learn from them instead of having to make their own. So talk to us about the system that you guys put in place and how you turn that into a product basically that is available to other people. Yeah, and the biggest thing on that, Clint, is thinking of it as a scalable solution. And in my mind, a scalable solution is like this conveyor belt or a person I've met through my journey. He called it the bionic sausage machine. Perry Marshall, that's his name, the bionic sausage machine. So in order to create this solution where we're taking an active labor intensive process and turning into a repeatable, consistent, dependable process, we have to have this conveyor belt. And anything that falls off that conveyor belt then creates a problem and starts absorbing your time. So finding your lane based off of your resources, I think is a great way to look at this. So whether we're talking single family, whether we're talking storage, multifamily, whatever it is, these solutions are there. And so many people have put together these solutions in a group to come up with these opportunities for other people to leverage that as a resource. In our world, that lane went from flipping to flipping to holding and now creating these businesses for other people to flip to hold. So in that Burr strategy, buy, renovate, rent, refinance, and repeat, it's finding this conveyor belt where in this lane, in this niche, this is the product that we're producing. And in those opportunities that come up, knowing that, hey, the more work we do on this property, the less that we have to do later. But the more work that we do, the more time it's going to take, the more unknowns are there. So if you're getting these lanes of this conveyor belt and say, hey, this is paint and carpet in turn, then it's a consistent, dependable product. Varying off that just a little bit creates a little more difficulty when it comes to that consistency and dependable return. How does your system, your product differ from a more traditional turnkey operation? Yeah, it's a great question. And it all makes sense in my mind, like this picture in my mind, if I just take that out of my mind, but trying to keep it simple and present it to everybody else, it's a turnkey real estate investment business as opposed to a turnkey real estate investment opportunity. So it's not the house, it's the business that we're putting together, molding, creating, leveraging that conveyor belt that we've talked about, those systems, processes, resources, our power team to enable the investor to be as passive as possible in these active opportunities. So if I had to guess, I'm assuming that the pieces here are going to include like an acquisitions team or realtor and acquisitions teams finding the deals. You're probably looking at some kind of network of contractors. You're looking for things under market value where they have room for forced appreciation. So you're going to need some kind of contractor or forced appreciation asset, you know, someone you can plug into that role, depending on what the labor is. And then you probably need connections in terms of the financing world, either through DSCR or just a refinance on the property, cash out refi, and then property management as well. Is that fair to say, or is there more pieces to that that I'm missing? Absolutely. No, that's great. And all of those pieces that you don't mention are under everything that you just talked about there, the integration, the automations, the technology that makes that repeatable and dependable process. The one thing I would add to that, Clint, would be the asset management piece. That's beyond the property management piece. Property managers got the tenant going to do the screening. They will do the turns when the tenant leaves. The asset management is stepping back and making sure that that on paper is also performing as it should as an investment. 
So there's an asset management piece to that once the property is stabilized. But I look at it at three buckets. You're 100% right. You've got the acquisition. That's the first bucket. You've got the renovation. That's the second bucket. And then asset management is the third bucket. How does that work for the end client? They're buying into the system and you're helping them build that team, those three buckets. Yeah, that team is built, man. That team is 100% built. And you guys know everything is cyclical. So as we're going through, the opportunities coming into that acquisition button bucket may change just a little bit, but the team is built and the economies of scale are applied because we have that relationship with title. We have that relationship with agents, with the construction team. I'm licensed in a couple of states, so we're actually plugged into the MLS We're aggregating data. We're pulling that into a platform we're building out. So it's literally into our user interface we've created. It's giving my acquisition team, I'm making five offers a day. And instead of looking at 200 properties, my guy is looking at 10 properties and we're making five offers every day. So the team is built. It's there. The cyclical piece, we all know that the cost of money right now here in the beginning of 2024 has been fascinating for the last year, year and a half. So Those relationships change a little, working with credit unions, working with other types of brokers, the types of product that we're working with. You mentioned the DSCR. Right now, we're leveraging DSCRs to, you know, think about it. We're doing 12 properties in 12 months to build this business for the clients. Typical in-the-box Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac financier is going to look like, what are you doing? You can't do that. So we've got to find the right solutions. And like I say, the team is built. Once we've got that team built, then it's economies of scale and just keep cranking this conveyor belt. I'm trying to understand from a physician, like I'm a physician investor who's got an interest in investing in real estate. What does it look like for me? I mean, does the system and the team continue to live with your team or are you helping me, the investor, to build that team? Yeah. One of the challenges is keeping this simple and that can all be based on your perspective. So if you just step back and look at it as, Hey, this is Neil. I don't have to be a physician. I've got deployable capital. I want to invest in real estate. Let's start there. So I have high income. I'm making this money. I don't have the time to go out or the energy to find and learn from my mistakes, trial by fire, all that stuff. But I've got this capital to invest. If my lane, if my why aligns with single family, then a good fit would be, say, Neil, you've got, say, $500,000, $600,000 of deployable capital to put into these properties. What we're going to do is we're going to set up this platform, which means we're going to set up this path for you to create your portfolio. So we're going to do 12 properties in 12 months. We're going to use that deployable capital. We're going to run about three properties at a time, implementing the BRRRR strategy. What this looks like for you is, We've got a couple of ways that we connect. One is Slack, where our whole entire team's on Slack. And then I've got a portal. I'm going to keep this simple for you. I'm going to give you deal summaries when this property, 1234 Main Street is up. Here's the details, Neil. It hits our investment objectives. We've got a green light on this. Uh, We'll be closing in a week. And the funds will be just as though you had bought another house before in your past. You're working with a title company. You're acquiring the property. The difference is... We are doing all the renovation. We're handling the property management, the utilities, everything. So you're sitting back, you're watching this Slack and in your client portal where you're seeing weekly updates. Uh, As this process rolls through that BRRRR strategy, my team has got the timeline laid out so that when that day that that renovation is complete, I've got the appraiser in there the next day and I've got the property management team in there taking pictures. So we're marketing that thing as soon as it's turning. As that property is refinanced, we're securing the tenant 
and it is then stabilized and refinanced and you've got a property that has gone through both those first two buckets, we move that into the third bucket. And that third bucket was asset management. And you say, how does that look? Once you're done with us, you won't need us is basically the way that I look at that. I want to create these SOPs that I can hand to you and you could hire an assistant. And my focus is to set up this business so that you can invest one hour a month into your single family portfolio and make sure that your assets are performing. That property management company that we're partnered with, I don't make any money off of them or anything. This is what they do 100%. That's why we lean on them. You can work with them or you can find a different property manager. Your assets are going to be stabilized. The team is going to be built. The SOPs are going to be there for you. Okay. So this is probably a couple part question. Number one is especially flipping. It has its ups and downs in the market. You kind of have to listen to what the market is giving you in terms of where the price of properties is, what the resale value is. It's obviously harder to find properties good for flipping in a strong seller's market. Like we had last year when it was very, very competitive. And then we've had a drastic shift in interest rates that have quickly swung things around to more of a buyer's market. So this is a really interesting time to be having this conversation with you when you've been in business in a scalable way since I think you said 2016. So how has that changed for you in the last 24 months? Is it getting harder to find deals? And then in terms of the refinance, obviously the interest rates changed. I'm sure that your LTV has changed in terms of the amount of capital that you can get back out of a Burr property to allow you to redeploy that to the next property. So what's some of the growth or adjustments that you guys have had to make in the last year or two? And frankly, I'm surprised a lot of times with the Burr strategy or with flipping, when the market gives that to you, everybody is all gung-ho, but a lot of times when the market shifts, it takes away opportunity from the people that are really not full-time in that space the way that you guys seem to be. So what are some of the ups and downs that you guys had to navigate with the crazy swings that we've seen in the market in the last couple of years? The biggest swing for us was focus, our focus as a direction as an acquisition company. That was the biggest swing. Our acquisition company through the years has been this bubble generator, the capital bubble generator that we've built our portfolio from. So that shift, you know, we scaled up at one time at 13 employees. We were nationwide doing this nationwide and, you know, spending six figures a month in marketing, direct to seller. And it was big swings. We have six-figure assignment contracts doing this. And that swing, probably about the summer summer of the year before, when these big hedge funds start moving, pulling out, backing out of contracts, the interest rate had doubled in 12 months. So when all of this was happening, staying in front of this, and again, I said it right from the start, the cyclical, understanding that these are cycles, understanding where the trends are, we had a shift at that point in our marketing direction how we were direct to seller, what we were doing. And then at the same time, it was a perfect time for the creation of Physician Wealth Systems because Physician Wealth Systems gave me the ability to leverage all those years of resources and leverage our team, all of our processes, focus down in on one specific market and build that conveyor belt that I was talking about. Now, when it comes down to the interest rate, when it comes down to opportunity, all of that is on the front side of an acquisition equation. If that interest rate goes up, then all I have to do is adjust my buying criteria on my investment objective. Clint, you're right. It does affect the equity positions, but we found that the higher the interest rate, the more equity we were grabbing in these properties because we were buying for cash flow. 
that equity is just a bonus on this, right? If my cost of money increases, I have to offer less in order to hit this cash flow. Well, we were popping properties that were getting fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars in equity, and the opportunity piece is they're out there. You have to have the systems in place. You have to have the drive and the relentless approach to resolve any issues and move with the cycles. What's working? What's not working? And continuous Tony Roberts can a constant and never-ending improvement of what you're doing. There's always going to be opportunities to buy. The cost of money, the situation that you're in, are just got to be figured right on the acquisition equation. I love that. So I didn't realize you guys had a basically what sounds like a nationwide wholesaling operation at one point in time, finding properties all over. It seems to me like you've really kind of gone surgical and narrowed down your scope to more of, you know, basically a sniper vision of what you're trying to accomplish. With what I'm hearing, a lot of it sounds like you have vertical integration in place that's allowing you to be very efficient to do 12 properties a year for an individual investor. That makes me think that because of that, you're probably dialed in your area and your geography of where you're operating. Is that the case? And if not, I'd love to hear about how you find people to handle construction and things like that outside of that. But if you've really dialed in an area, like what's your geography and how are you targeting? Yeah, great, great. So yes, it is surgical and no pun intended with the physician well systems piece of it, but it is definitely surgical. And there's something in the medical world that I've heard I think it's called Six Sigma, just figuring out, hey, what are your six next moves? What can go wrong? What are we doing? That's the way that we're running these systems and constantly improving these systems. This is fine-tuned. Right now, we're in the Memphis market. Last year, you know, I considered, okay, I'm creating the verticals that you talk about. One of them is the prop tech piece that we're creating in this platform that we're creating for acquisition for asset management. I could pick up that thing and put it in another market. I'm licensed in a couple of states. I could do that. But the focus is that bionic sausage machine. And part of that, too, is my team understanding my acquisition manager, my market director. He can tell me from one side of the street to the other. And he's never, ever set foot in Memphis. I mean, this guy has literally spent 10, 20, 30, you know, so many hours on Zillow tours the street on Google. So it's interesting. But that gives us the ability to know what's happening. And then... Clinton, that's built off of the shoulders of our power team, our resources there, my project manager, my real estate consultant. They born and raised in these areas and know this street from that street. And they give us a feel on the walkthroughs. Hey, we rate this a D, a D plus area. Really, this is a C, a C plus area. And then they'll just straight up tell you, hey, back away. Don't do this one. So that's built off of all of our technology, our systems, our experience, and then built on the shoulders of the people who live in these areas. Now, on a side note from that, I tell everybody from the line between Washington and Canada, there's a place up there out in the middle of nowhere. We've wholesaled a house up there. We've bought and sold what we call wholesale a house on the ocean in New Jersey. So we've literally run the gamut across the United States. There are a lot of more people that have done way more than us. The thing I love from that is the challenges we picked up along the way, the processes we picked up along the way, and the, the idea of, hey, how do you find a dependable construction team when you're switching markets every time. You're basically building a new business, Clint, every time that you pop a house in a different market. I don't like that at all. And that's one of the things I liked getting away from. I've got a buddy, his name is Indar. He's from Hawaii. And he, this guy has got the systems. He's got the processes. He does this everywhere. And he happily jumps into a new market. 
if anybody's out there who does something like this, they probably know one of the key resources that you would have is an experienced agent in the market. And that experienced agent then is going to have a team that they do this with all the time. So that's a great connection that how we would connect with people outside of market when we do those types. But now, like you said, we're surgical. We're in, I know one side of the street to the other. And we've got feeding that information into our systems. Our next step is leveraging AI to build off of all this data that we're collecting. Yeah, I think that makes all the difference. If single families is your journey and that's the asset class you're going after, I think you always leave a little bit of value on the table anytime you're jumping to a new area. The, the key is once you're established in an area, people start knowing that you're buying, deals start popping up, people start coming to you, your contractors are bird dogging for you because you're feeding them and keeping food on their table and they want to keep helping you find properties. Some of the contractors in the local boots on the ground are the most valuable people that you have. So when you're hopping from one asset class to another or jumping around from town to town and the idea that you're going to go in and build those teams in each different place, it's exactly what you said. You're building a business over and over again. That's where a lot of the value is, is in your people, right? It is the business. And so that makes a lot more sense to me of where you dialed in on kind of getting into that. At the same time, I'm sure that creates opportunity for you between you're finding all kinds of deals. I know you're finding things outside of single family homes, multifamily or other things. Like, do you ever get shiny penny syndrome and you're looking around or do you still wholesale some of those deals off or are you just laser focused on keeping the main thing, the main thing? I've had shiny object-itis for years and years and years. And my wife is a partner in all of our businesses. At one point, she's like, you got to stop starting new businesses. You just got to stop. So that was definitely something that I struggled with through the years, just keep everything too complicated, trying to do everything. And now this is really the focus. But if things pop up and they will fit into our current systems, like right now, we got to stuff through SEO, search engine optimization. We invested in that a lot starting a couple of years ago. So we'll have leads come in through that manner. And I've got the acquisition purse on call. He takes the call. If we put it in paper, we put it in paper, but I'm not going to take the time to go out and spend time dispositioning something. If there's a way to easily turn that into income, then that helps with the marketing costs, you know, for the other pieces of the machine. But We've got one right now where we flipped one in, it's actually in Saginaw, Michigan. It came through that way. You know, and looking back at it, the amount of money that we're making on it is not worth the time to put into it from a higher perspective. So it's that idea, but the systems are in place. Our systems are in place. It's not a whole ton of additional time. It's just there and it'll go through the process for us. If that makes sense. It's got some very rough areas. I mean, it's just like anywhere else. It probably has room for appreciation. It's a stretch. It's a cash flow play, right? But obviously the idea is, you know, more millionaires have been created through appreciation than ever have been created through cash flow. If you're living off of ongoing cash flow, you're going to always have capital expenditures, especially with that class of clientele. I want to ask him about the types of properties that you guys are at with Memphis. Are most of these properties section eight, or are you at least doing the analysis of what they're worth as a single family rental given the market. I know you're looking at, you know, B, C, D class areas, looking at what you're getting it for, what the forced depreciation is. Are you looking at section eight or that's not your clientele or you're comparing kind of what the rents are across the board to decide what's, is the juice going to be worth the squeeze? So that's awesome. Awesome question. This could be a whole nother podcast in itself. So when we first launched in, I didn't want anything to do with rental assistance, section eight. I've got a colleague of mine that's got 40 units, loves section eight. 
So kind of going into this, it was my mindset. I'd had bad experience in Michigan. It was not voucher style with housing authority. It was rental assistance through nonprofit type stuff. It was tough. Uh, but now going to this, being in Memphis and seeing Memphis's push for affordable housing, Memphis's push by increasing the amount of money that's given to the Section 8 process uh, was very intriguing. And then actually locking into some of these Section 8 deals where the rent is, because if you think about it, there's more Section 8 money and renters than there are landlords who offer that scenario. This is only my perspective. The reason was, as an investor, as a property owner, why would I do that? Right? Why would I create a situation where I know my property, I feel like my property is going to get destroyed. I'm not going to get my money. I have different ways. I can't get the tenant out of the place. I don't know. So all these things as a property owner is going through my mind. But knowing that with the change in management in the Memphis Housing Authority with the new Section 8 program, the consistency that landlords are getting paid, the pushing down more on the tenants, making them more responsible because if they have to attract the property owners back in order for the system to work, they have to pay them on time. And there has to be a situation where the assets taken care of that shift is changing. And the other thing that shift is happening, the other thing that's different is the amount of money that you can get on a section eight, what section eight is paying. Now, this is also the difficult part, Clint, because how do I project this? Nobody knows. Nobody knows how these comparables are being set. I've looked at some of the rent comparables in these Section 8 scenarios, and it's just fascinating to see how these are pulled in. But ultimately, there's a way as a property owner to provide affordable housing when it's assisted type rent payment. I can get more income for this property. Some of the things that we look at doing this is it's likely that a tenant is going to stay longer when you do have, so decreasing your vacancy, but during that stay, it's likely that the wear and tear is going to increase. So the vacancy will decrease, but the maintenance will increase a little bit. So understanding those adjustments, but everything that we've locked into with the Memphis Housing Authority Section 8 voucher system is paid on time. It's direct deposit. It's been working out wonderfully. The challenge now is the property management companies that market directly for and find these tenants who are qualified with this voucher for this amount that fits in this neighborhood. That's where we need this price point to come in at. That's a challenge. And then finding what is that price point. We've gotten a feel of what it's like and how we can anticipate these and anticipate the timeline it takes to place a Section 8 tenant as well, too. Lots of stuff there. I tell you, we could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'm sure we can. We're not going to turn the Section 8 episode, but... One of the complaints that I've heard about Section 8 or any government-assisted housing is that the oversight can get expensive because, you know, you've got whatever agency that's providing that voucher that's going to come in and do an inspection every year, I think, minimum, and that sometimes they can get really, really nitpicky about, well, you got to fix this, you got to fix this. And so you may, what you gain in lower vacancy and a more stable cash flow, you maybe lose more in maintenance because that agency is there constantly saying, you got to fix this, you got to fix this, you got to fix this. Is my understanding? Could be. That could be based on the investor themselves. For us, when we come in, you got to think our average renovation is $30 a square foot. That's our average. So when we come in, I'm trying to attack all of our capital expenditures right out of the gate. 
So that's going to mean I'm going to put out a nice, neat, clean, and mechanically sound quality property for a family every single time. Now, when that inspection comes back around in six months, 12 months, for us, it should just be a basic turn for us. We're taking care of our property. It's not saying that investors that you have spoken to don't take care of their properties, but the way that we attack the condition of the property from the acquisition may be a little bit different. All right, Brett, let's say I'm a white coat professional a physician or high earning income individual. I've got 700 grand. I've always wanted to dabble in real estate, but I haven't done it. And so I've decided I want to get into single families and build a portfolio. And I see the value of how much faster I can do it with you using your expertise and the vertical integration system that you've put into place. Thinking ahead for that investor, let's talk exit strategy for a little bit, because the way I'm looking at it, this is a cash flow play. And cash flow is great, especially for people that are immediately trying to replace their income or buy a little bit more freedom down the line. I think we all know that in the long run in the history of the world, appreciation has created more millionaires and multimillionaires than cash flow has. So that's one of the issues. I had nine single family homes at one point in time. And one of the things that I got a little bit scared about with Section 8 areas is that they don't tend to appreciate the way that others do unless there's kind of a big movement revitalization program in the area, which could be coming down the line for Memphis. But let's say just looking ahead, what's a typical exit strategy for somebody that's going to end up with 20, 30, 40 properties with you? Are people trading these portfolios or are they typically refinancing them together into a portfolio loan or paying them off and just continuing to get cash flow? What are you seeing in that space in the long run or what the off rent looks like for an investor there? Yeah, I look at this, Clint, every time I look at a property, if it was my acquisition, every time I look at a portfolio as if it were my portfolio. So we would start off with understanding, hey, what does look ahead look like? And where are you in that regard? Where's the time? Where you want to be? How are you taking this portfolio? How is that going to be transferred to an heir? Is it going to family? Is it going to a foundation? You know, so there's certain things that will drive the direction of that portfolio. What we're doing is we're just starting this first block this first block inside of the single family world. And I'm going to say 12 houses. If you wanted to do more than that, you know, we can do more than that. But I think that's a great pocket just to sit in. Say you did two years, 24 houses. Okay, that's a great, but let's move on past that. I don't think that scaling a single family to hedge style piece is somewhere that I would push somebody to direct to. Because then, hey, if this is something where you did want to move the portfolio, you can. It's easier than maybe around that size, but it's all about where you're going. And for me, I say that the single family piece is the foundation, is the first learning block, the leading block for this. From there, moving into a scenario where, okay, the first client we're working with, we're actually shooting to acquire a 20 to 30 unit apartment building with this year in the Carolinas. So that's kind of like the next step of moving into another area of real estate. And yeah, we've got a quadplex in the acquisition process right now. So these other things are popping up. But I did want to talk about the equity piece. You were 100% right. We buy for cash flow. That cash flow is going to fuel these stackable returns in single family. And that's awesome. If it's cash flowing, it's awesome. The equity multiples are something just like in multifamily. That's the difference maker in the forced depreciation. We have those. And with the flip, those were the bubble capitals we talked about that we enabled us to build our portfolio. And if you look back over time, Clint, the last 10 years, 15 years, look at even the stable markets, even the markets where it doesn't feel like they're growing. 
where it feels like you can buy a house for and renovate it for $100,000. What market is that? Those markets, if you look back over the last 10, 15 years, look where the price is done over the last 10 or 15 years. So it's down to that question of what does a head look like? If you look on average the last 10, 15 years, whatever that may be, whatever market it may be, look at the price of those houses and then look at the rent in those markets as well too. It's remarkable to look at that. And even in Memphis, we're looking at six-figure increase in value of property and rent almost doubling in 15 years. Well, Brett Riggins, thank you so much for sharing with our audience today. If any of them want to find out more about you or Physicians Wealth Systems, what's the best way for them to go about doing that? Man, the .com, keep it easy. PhysicianWealthSystems.com. We've got everything on there and we've got access to the resources in complete transparency of what we're learning, who we're connecting with, just to offer that to anybody who has that seed planted or to find other podcasts, you know, this podcast, the Real Estate Mogul MD podcast, just anything that we can offer to bring resources, whether you're a physician or not. We cross the line on a lot of different platforms just to make sure that if that seed is planted, the faster that you can separate your time from your money, the closer you're going to be getting to that direction of your why. Could not agree more. Awesome, Brett. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on and thanks for your time. Hey guys, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening and watching the Truly Passive Income podcast. If you liked the show, if you think it would be useful for someone else, the greatest compliment that you could give us would be to share the episode, leave a comment down below, or leave us an honest review. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to let us know down below. And remember, with Truly Passive Income comes freedom of time, place, and the freedom to pursue your higher purpose.